Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityurma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Om Lead us from untruth to the truth Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. And yet another beautiful day in Santa Barbara. (laughs) Yes, it's cleared up. And Santa Barbara is more like Santa Barbara today compared to yesterday. Um, In this lecture today, which is titled Seeing God in Everything, if, if you think that the title sounds ambitious, wait till you find out what I have got in store for us this morning. In the course of this talk, we shall learn exactly what God is in Vedanta and where do you find God we shall learn why it is extraordinarily difficult to speak about God we shall learn why it is extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily simple in what ways is it extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily simple to realize God we shall learn incidentally on the way, what is this whole thing about not worshipping images and worshipping images? That, that also will come up on the way. And we shall also learn on the way, how do you see this God of Vedanta? How do you see it in every experience? In every experience that we have. How do you see God when, when, you, when you draw each breath? How do you experience God when you open your eyes and close your eyes? When you hear something? How do you experience God in every experience? That we shall see. And we shall see um, how do you experience God, your oneness with everybody. And we shall also see what is the result of this God experience? What, what is the result? What do you gain out of it? And as a corollary, we shall also see what is the loss if we do not do that. So this is on the menu this morning. And I think I get ambitious with every lecture. You know, get more and more ambitious about the ground to be covered. But let's see what we can do. As usual, the song was chosen perfectly, and it really matches God in everything. We have to go thousands of years back to ancient Vedic India, to one of the oldest Upanishads, the Kena Upanishad, 
where the student asks a question to the teacher. We do not know today who the student was. There are no names. We do not know today who the teacher was. There are no names. But we have the question and we have the answer. The question itself is remarkable. One of the most remarkable questions asked in any philosophical dialogue anywhere in the world. The question goes like this. The original Sanskrit goes like this. Om kene shitam preshitam patati mana kena prana prathama preti yukta kene shitam vacham imam vadanti chakshu shrotram kaudeva yunakti. Say, sir, impelled by what? Inspired by what? Does my mind think? What makes my mind think? What makes me utter these words? What makes my eyes see? How do I see? What makes my ears hear? What makes my life move? This is a question. Now, if you think about it, it's a remarkable question. I have a whole talk about this which I gave in San Diego last week and I hope to do it here some other time. We should just stop here and appreciate the question and its answer. But today we cannot afford to do so because we have an extraordinarily long journey today. But I'll just touch upon the importance of this question and the answer. You see, what is he asking? What is he asking? It's like, you have this bulb here, which is right in front of me, or the mic here, or a fan. And when this bulb or the mic or the fan was in the shop, it was just there, just, just like this, they were there. But they were not doing anything in particular. But when you bring them here and plug them in, in remarkable things start happening. The bulb gives light, the microphone amplifies sound, the fan starts whirling around and gives us air. And we are justified in asking, what happened to them? Why are they doing these peculiar things? They were not doing that earlier. The bulb was just sitting there. And the mic was just sitting there. And the fan was just sitting there. But right now, each of them are doing remarkable things. One is shining. The other one is amplifying sound. The other one is going round and round and giving us air. What got into them? And the answer, of course, is electricity. The answer, of course, is electricity. And we know that. Electricity is something that is not part of the bulb, not part of the microphone, not part of the fan, but which enters into all of them and enables each one to do what it was designed to do. Even simpler, you take a Swami in, in Chennai, uses this example. There's a glass of water and there's another glass of water. Both of them look the same. You drink one and it's sweet. You drink the other one and it's salty. They look the same. But you know that something has gotten into them because water by itself is neither sweet nor salty. Here there is sugar, somebody has put it in and there is salt, somebody has put it in there. So something external has gotten into it, giving it its present property, which it does not belong to it. What gives us this experience of seeing, speaking, hearing? Now remember, here is the sophistication, the, of the sophistication of the question which we are just beginning to understand, by the way. I will not go into that. But you see, the sophistication of the question lies here. He is not asking how I see or how I hear. He's not asking for an explanation of the visual mechanism or the auditory mechanism or 
our thoughts is not ask, asking for an explanation of that what he's asking is the conscious experience of seeing hearing speaking thinking the first person experience the subjective experience the experience of it being conscious sentient aware to make it even more clear let's use a a modern example which is happening right now on the roads in california uh if in california when you're driving around you might get to see a very strange little vehicle it's the google car it's in the, it's been in the news and they are testing it it's a driverless car which has been predicted by science fiction for a long time but now it seems to be coming becoming real and it's there on the streets and they are testing it so when you drop at a, at a traffic intersection and this little car it looks like a beetle volkswagen beetle a little one but a tiny car it rolls up next to you and you look there and there's nobody sitting at the driver's wheel <laughs> there might be a passenger who will nod to you in a friendly way and wave to you but there's nobody in the in the driver's wheel and it drives it does exactly all the things that you do externally it can sense other cars it can turn left and right it can speed up it can slow down it can brake it can do everything that you are doing and they claim it does it better than you oh yes they claim that in fact right now they are i was amazed to see an article which says which speaks about um not only legalizing driver driverless cars but actually making them mandatory they're saying that driverless cars are going to be mandatory and you will not get a driver's license they said uh, ultimately uh, the aim is to make a driver's license as rare as a latin professorship or something like that you know <laughs> that's what time mag- this is the language of time magazine now my question is and this is exactly the same question that student was asking thousands of years ago my question is like and i can sharpen the question to make it very clear you are sitting in your car and the google car pulls up next to you what is different between the two to an external observer there's nothing different there's nothing different both cars are doing the same thing he cannot make out which one has a has a human operator which one has a computer but there's a huge difference as far as your subjective experience is concerned there is something like what it feels to like driving a car what it feels to be driving a car the sights the sounds the decisions that you are taking the feelings the the conscious experience of driving a car the google computer is not having that experience but it's doing everything that you are doing so on the surface mechanically speaking it can in a sense it can see it can it can take decisions it can sense presence of other cars and obstacles and people it can do everything that you are doing and yet it does not have the first person experience within which you or i which we have when you drive, drive when we drive a car you needn't go that far when in an airport when you put your hand under the water faucet and it gives you a stream of water it senses your hand it's in a way it's seeing when the door opens when you approach it it senses your presence it's a very simple sensor so that can happen without a conscious experience the door is not aware of it or not, not, neither is the faucet aware of your presence there's no conscious experience within them so what the student is asking here is what gives us this conscious experience you and i and all of us what gives us this conscious experience when we see when we hear when we speak when we talk when we breathe so 
what is it that gives us this conscious experience? And the answer he's asking for, of course, we all know it is consciousness itself. And the answer is indicated by the teacher in the next verse, which is the most important verse of the Upanishad, the Kena Upanishad. And it is a strange answer. If the question is sophisticated, the answer is even more sophisticated and pretty strange. What is the answer? What is the answer that the teacher gives? The teacher says, Shrotrasya shrotram manaso mano yad vacho havacham so pranasya pranaha chakshushas chakshur atimuchyadhira pretyasmad lokadamrita bhavanti. The whole of the Upanishad and whole of Vedanta are packed into this one single sentence. And the rest of the Upanishad spends time in unpacking it. That's what we'll do this morning. What did he say? What did he say in this ancient Sanskrit? You're asking for what gives you the experience of hearing. Right now all of us are listening, hearing. This first person experience, awareness, I hear a sound. What gives you this experience? You're asking that? Yes. What makes your ears hear? Yes. It is the ear of the ear. What? What makes your eyes see? It is the eye of the eye. What makes your mind think? It is the mind of the mind. What makes your speech speak? I can see the student going, don't tell me, it's the speech of the speech. <laughs> Let me guess. And if you realize this, that which is the ear of your ear, the mind of your mind, the eye of your eye, the speech of your speech, if you realize this, you become immortal. You transcend all sorrows. That's what the teacher says. Now what has he said? Let's unpack it a little before we move ahead. He's saying, by saying ear of the ear, he's pointing out to our consciousness, making a very important point. What is that point? If you say the ear is sufficient to explain hearing, then you don't have to say ear of the ear. But the moment you say ear of the ear, what you mean is something separate from the ear. First thing you mean is when you say ear of the ear, when you say owner of the house, meditator in the, in the temple, you mean somebody separate from the house, separate from the temple, who has entered into the temple or the house, who owns the house or is sitting and meditating in the temple. So the entity you are speaking about is separate from the auditory system or from the visual system, even from our mind. Is this point, are you following me on this point? The moment you say ear of the ear, mind of the mind, eye of the eye, he is pointing to one entity. He is not saying hearing, thinking, speaking, seeing, these are different processes and they have to be explained differently. No. They are different processes. But there is something common to each of them and that something is separate from each of them. Just as if I say to you, if you ask me, what got into the light and the microphone and the fan? Why is the light shining and the microphone amplifying sound and the fan whirling round and round? I will say, it is the light of the light, microphone of the microphone, fan of the fan. What do you mean? I mean something that is apart from the light. Something that is apart from the microphone. Something that is not a part of the fan. One. Two, I also mean... Something that enters into the light and makes it do what it is designed to do. Something that it enters into the microphone and the fan and makes them do 
what they are designed to do. In the same way, there is something that shines upon our visual system, auditory system, our, our brain, our mind, and makes each of them do what they are supposed to do. They do their functions, and we get this first-person experience. Technically, I just mentioned the names. You can look it up later. In, in uh, consciousness studies, this is called the hard problem of consciousness. There's a philosopher, David Chalmers, who speaks of uh, this, this thing as a hard problem of consciousness. How we have individual systems in our body which function, that is the easier problem. How you can map them to functioning of the brain. They use uh, functional fMRI, the F functional MRI tests, F fMRI, and it, they, he calls it the science of correlations. You do something and they find out what, is, what part of your brain is firing and they say, okay, this is what is causing this. He says that is the easy problem of consciousness. Easy within quotes. That's not easy, but it takes a lot of technology. But he says there is a hard problem of consciousness which we have not begun to crack yet. We have not even begun to define the problem. The problem is the central problem of consciousness is how, do we, how does the brain generate first-person experience? The feeling that we get when we see a flower, when we speak, when we are hungry, when, when we see. So that is the question. And the answer is, it is consciousness itself. And he is making a big claim here. Consciousness, what he calls consciousness, the teacher of Vedanta, he says it is not part of your body-mind complex. First, already we are parting ways with mainstream science. Although there are changes taking place in, in modern science, but... Mainstream science, physics, medicine would say um, the brain generates consciousness. They would say that the brain generates the mind and the consciousness and, and they call it an epiphenomenon. Like a candle burns and generates a flame and heat and light. In the same way the brain somehow is generating. How? We don't know. Mind and consciousness, how, how does the brain generate that? We don't know. But maybe we will know in the future. That's what science is saying right now. The Vedant, Vedantic teacher says this consciousness is not generated by the brain or the nervous system. It operates through the brain and the nervous system. That's a big claim that they are making. And what else does it do? It enables the body-mind to do what it is designed to do. To speak, to think, to hear. And not only that, when the body-mind are existing, the consciousness works through the body and this consciousness is apart from the mind too. It enables the mind to think, to feel, to imagine, to remember. And when the body-mind are not there, this consciousness, they claim, is still there. It is still there. Only it is not apparent. It's like when you, when you remove the bulb and the, and, the light, and the microphone and the fan, the electricity is still there. Only it is not apparent. Only when you put in the gadgets and they start functioning is it apparent that there is electricity. In the same way, our conscious experiences require two things. Consciousness itself and the body-mind system, which does various things. And we have various conscious experiences. So this is what he's claiming. That consciousness is, the light, is, is your ear of the ear, eye of the eye, mind of the mind. But why such strange language? Why doesn't he use the usual Vedantic language? Vedantic language, why, why couldn't he say Atman or Brahman? 
which you are as students of Vedanta, you have been hearing for years. Atman or Brahman. Well, because we have a tendency to objectify. Everything that we know is an object of consciousness. It is a great thing to understand. Everything that we know is an object of consciousness. Knowing means objectifying something with your consciousness. When you see something, you are objectifying something. Consciousness plus mind plus visual system seeing an object. Consciousness plus mind plus auditory system hearing a sound. Sound, object, all these are objects. Sound and uh, form, all these are objects of consciousness. All these are objects of consciousness. The moment the teacher tells you, the answer to your question is, Brahman or Atman, what will be our first tendency? Okay, Brahman or Atman, I know these things. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, these things I know. And the 10th one which I want to know or the nth one which I want to know is Atman or Brahman, an object. And you'll never ever find it that way. We have a tendency to objectify. The moment you say, you have to realize God. Okay, where is God? You look around. It can be seen. Okay, let me try to hear some divine sound. It can be heard. Okay, let me try to think. It can be thought about. Because it is not an object. Everything that you see is an object. Everything that you hear is an object. Everything that you think about is an object. Therefore, the teacher does not give a name like Brahman or Atman. He turns our attention inwards. You're seeing something? Forget the thing which you are seeing. Turn inwards to the seer of seeing. You're hearing something? Forget the thing which you are hearing. Turn inwards from the hearing to the hearer of hearing. That's what he's doing. That is our true self. That consciousness which illumines our seeing, hearing and thinking. That is us. Well, why couldn't the teachers then simply say, Oh, it's you. You want to know what is what impels your mind to think, what impels your eyes to see and ears to hear? Well, it's you. Why couldn't he say that? He cannot say that because the moment he says you, we already have a preconceived notion of what we are. The moment he says, oh, you are that pure consciousness, I think I, mean it, I the word I means this body and mind. The moment the teacher says you, the student will think of his own body and mind. So this is what is the source of all consciousness. No. If you use the word you, for us the word you means this body and mind. Won't work. If you use the word Atman, Brahman, God, Nirvana, all are objective. So the teacher uses this stratagem. It's, you can see why it is so extraordinarily difficult to talk about the pure subject. Because we have an objective, objectifying tendency. If you realize this, what do you mean by realizing this? He uses a very interesting word, atimuchya, transcending. Transcending means the reference of the word I, the vertical I. When we use the word I, right now it refers to our body-mind. Transcending will be when the reference of the eye shifts from the body-mind to that consciousness lighting up this body-mind. I'll repeat that again. When I say I, right now I mean this one. 
But when I'm enlightened, the word I will mean the consciousness which is illumining this body and mind. Swami Vivekananda says, sit quietly and say to yourself, I. If any thought of the body or the mind comes, then you are not enlightened yet. (laughs) (laughs) And the student is convinced, there is such a thing which transcends this body and mind, which which is what powers my seeing, hearing and everything, which exists without the body and mind also. If I realize myself as that, I become immortal. Wonderful. I want to know that. Tell me, how do I know that? And the teacher says, I don't know. This is, this is why it makes the Upanishad so interesting. You know, there are these sudden turns. And, and it, it's very startling. The teacher says, we do not know how to teach that. Why not? Because the eyes do not go there, the ears do not go there, um, speech cannot express it, mind cannot think of it. How do I teach it? It cannot be taught. Then the student, like you, you would all feel, you know, Oh, really? You should have advertised that first. I saw it on your flyer and it turned out here to Santa Barbara on a beautiful Sunday morning to listen uh, to a nice talk about about Vedanta and my soul and, and God. And Now you say we don't know? You should have told that earlier. And be- before you get up and say, okay, let's go back home. Well, let me tell you what the teacher does. I'm sure the same situation must have happened thousands of years ago. The student was maybe, did a namas- namaste and I was about to get up. And the teacher says, wait, 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 wait. There is a way. There is a way. What is that way? The way in which all the teachers and students in Vedanta tradition, the way they have become enlightened, there is a very interesting way. Let me try that on you and see what happens. There is a way. Even though it's not possible to speak directly of Brahman or Atman or that pure consciousness, what is that way? That which you are seeking for, the teacher says, it's other than anything that you know. It's, it's not what you know. All that you know, what you have seen, what you have heard, what you, what you remember, what you understand, it's none of that. The student says, okay, I get it. It's something that I don't know. Ah, it's not what you don't know. The teacher says, that which you are looking for, God, Brahman, Atman, pure consciousness, whatever, it is not what you know. All the things that you know, it's not that. And, so it's something that you, I don't know, obviously. No. There are many things that you do not know, yes. It's none of those either. That's the exact teaching that the teacher gives. Anyad evatadviditad. Atho avidita dadhi. It is apart from all the things that, is, that are known, not only by you, by anybody in this universe. And it is beyond the unknown also. What does that mean? The teacher says, This is the way we have been taught. It is Ushruma Purvesham Ye Nastad Shakshire. By the masters of yore who taught us in this way, this is how we became enlightened. Well, how does that work? Think about it. All the things that we know that are knowable, it's only the things which you know, which are knowable that we can know. Now all the things that are knowables, things which we can know, 
they are divided into two sets. The things which you already know and the things which you do not know yet. You may know some of that and some of that you may never know. But all of them are what? They are knowables. Knowables. And in the whole set of knowables, there's a small part of it which you already know and that's called the known. And there's a big part. I think it was Einstein who said that uh, the more I know, the more the, the, the realm of the unknown, it seems bigger and bigger. My ignorance become, becomes bigger. So he says, the more you know, the more the unknown, you become aware of how much you do not know. But both the known, the teacher is saying here, both the known and the unknown, all together, they are the knowables, what can be known. If you say, what did you have for lunch? Um, you don't say, uh, I had lasagna and I didn't have uh, the Pacific Ocean. That's not even wrong. To be right or wrong, it must be logical, it must be meaningful. Pacific Ocean is not an eatable, not for us at least. You have to say something eatable. I had lasagna and I did not have zucchini or something like that. So, I know this and I do not know that. This and that must be within the realm of the known. What is there that is not within the realm of the known, knowable, either known or unknown? The knowable, the set of knowables breaks up into the known and the unknown. What is there that is neither known nor unknown? I often ask this question and it's usually the kids who get it right. Apart from all the things that you know, apart from all the things that you do not know, what is there? What is there which you do not know and yet you cannot say that you do not know? know. Well, that sounds a bit like, who was that? A politician who said... (laughs) Yes? Everything else. When you have the entire set of the knowables... You are leaving out one thing. The knower. You the knower. The one who knows. Sometimes kids get it. They just go like this. Yes, me. I am the knower. I the one who operates this mechanism called the eyes and sees things. Who operates the mechanism called the ears and auditory system and hears things. And the mind and thinks things. But what am I apart from the mind, ears and eyes? That which is the knower is not in the set of knowable. Because it is the knower. It is not the known. Because whatever you know, you are knowing with the... The knower is knowing all of them. and And the knower is apart from the known. And there are some things which the knower does not know. Those are the unknown. But the knower himself or herself, that that thing which knows is apart from the knowables. Whether it is known or unknown. And that has to be grasped. If you say, just say you, look at ourselves. In ourselves, if you look at yourself, you will find two things. One is, you will find a lot of things which you know. You can see your body. You can feel your body. You close your eyes, you can... Sense your mind. You can remember, you can think, you can understand. You can remember. So all these things are part of your subtle body, the mind. And these are also known. They are knowable. What is it that knows? What is it that knows? Apart from the body and mind. It knows the body and mind too. Together with the body and mind, it knows the world. 
But when you look at the body and mind, it's something apart from the body and mind which experiences the body and mind. So that is what our, our real nature is. The knower apart from the knowable. And then the teacher says, that is what you are. And he says, Yadvachana bhyuditam yena vaga bhyudyate tadeva brahmatvam vidhi nedam yadidam upasate. Wonderful thing. You know, I sometimes wonder how a language can be so poetic and yet so philosophically precise. What is he saying here? That which language cannot express, but that which enables language to function. Language cannot express it, but it enables language to function. Know that to be God, not what is worshipped as this. Beautiful point. Here you understand the mystery of worshipping images and the mystery of why image worship is, you know, worshipping a gra- graven image is prohibited. Both, thing, both things you understand in a, in a very beautiful way. It says, that which speech cannot express, nothing you speak about is that Brahman. And yet that which enables the speech to function, that consciousness within you, it's not talking about something abstract, unknown, difficult. It's talking about something which we use all the time, which we experience all the time. Every time we utter a word, it's that consciousness which illumines our, our mind and our body and we speak. And he says, you cannot speak about that and that enables you to speak about everything else. That in most consciousness is Brahman. The Brahman is the Vedantic word for God. That is God. Not what you worship as this. You see, this, this shows us the mystery of the worship that is done in all the temples and churches. And if every, and, and, you know, when, when you take up an image or a picture, all the time, what does the Hindu do? People think they are worshipping an image, an object. They are not worshipping an object. If you see very carefully, the Hindu is doing exactly that. In the mantras of the worship, when you look at the worship, the mantras, what is chanted, O thou inmost consciousness, I imagine you as a form and a name and may you pervade this name and form and accept my worship in this form. So they know that it is our inmost consciousness. There will actually be a ritual where you think of the body being divinized and the consciousness shining through. Then you breathe on a flower and imagine, it's all in imagination, the divinity being manifested in the flower and then you put it on the uh, altar where you worship. So the Hindu knows very well. It is the inmost consciousness beyond the physical body, beyond the subtle body, which enables the physical body and the subtle body to function. That is God. And that is what we are worshipping with the help of a name and form. Why do you need the help of a name and form? Well, when, if you try to imagine, if you, even if you try to intellectually appreciate what we are speaking about, it's very difficult. It's, it's easy to un- intellectualize and get a framework, get an appreciation of what we are talking about. But actually to make it a living reality, something that you can worship, adore and be one with, it's very difficult directly. So the, the Hindus developed an entire technology of taking the pure subject and reflecting it in an object, name and form of a god or a goddess or something, and worshipping it there. You can also understand the other side of it. In the Abrahamic religions, starting from the Ten Commandments, 
down to Prophet Muhammad why they say that you should not worship a thing, an idol. An idol is a thing. So the thing should not be worshipped in itself because what they are trying to talk about is the inmost consciousness, which is never an object, not this. That which enables your speech to function, that is Brahman, not what you worship as this. Yan manasana manute yena hurmanomatam tadeva brahmatvam vidhi nedam yadidam upasate That which cannot be thought about, the mind cannot think about it. Yet, which enables the mind to function. Every thought is illumined by that consciousness. Without that, we will not have thoughts. A thought is a function of the mind shining in your consciousness. In the consciousness which you are. So that which enables the mind to function, mind to think. That is Brahman, not what you worship as this. Tadeva Brahmatvam Vidhi. Know that in most consciousness to be Brahman, to be God. Not what you worship as this. So, you see here how the teacher is pointing out the real secret behind image worship and pointing the student back to his inmost consciousness. Let's go further. Now we come, we are actually coming to the point of this lecture, the whole talk. The teacher says, Pratibodha viditam matam amritatvam hivindate He says, when you experience Brahman, God, in every experience, within every experience, then you become immortal. Immortality is attained by experiencing God or Brahman in every experience. How do you do that? How do we do that? Remember, the context is seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, thinking, remembering. Seeing what? Hearing what? Not anything extraordinary. They are not here talking about an extraordinary mystical experience of some god, goddess or something. No. They are talking about anything that you see. They are talking about anything that you hear. They are talking about anything that you think. In these experiences, how do we realize God? It works like this. If you have been paying attention, now I want to, you to redouble your attention. Here is something crucial. Language... You see, language can be used in two ways. Language can be used in two ways. One way is, when I am in Santa Barbara, right here, and somebody points it out to me, this is the temple, I look at the temple, this is the bookshop, I look at the bookshop, and it tells me about the, the, the convent here in Santa Barbara, giving information to something I am already experiencing. You are already here, you are seeing all this and you are just adding information. Telling you something you did not know about, your, something you are already experiencing. That's one way to use language. To give you information about something you already are experiencing. To point out something that you are already experiencing. When they point it out to you, this is the temple. So you go, ah, so this is the temple. You are already seeing it, you do not see anything new. You are already seeing it. This is vital. You are already seeing the temple. You just know it to be the temple. That's one way of using language. Another way of using language is, when I am in Hollywood and I have not visited Santa Barbara, somebody describes to me, there is this beautiful convent in Santa Barbara, which looks like this, and they have this kind of a temple, they have this kind of a bookshop, they have this kind of a garden. Now all of that is a description of something I have not seen. 
Now it generates a desire to see this place. And then I come and see it. Language can be used in two ways. One is giving you some information, pointing out what you are already experiencing. You need, need that sometimes. When somebody introduces you to a new person, you're seeing that person and then you say, this is Mr. So-and-so. Okay. You don't see anything new, but now you know this is who this person is. Another way of using language is something that we have not seen earlier. Somebody describes it to us. Now, here is the question. All this we were describing right now, ear of the ear, eye of the eye, and so on and so forth, the consciousness within us. What kind of use of language is this? Are they describing something to us which we have not yet experienced and we'll have to do lots of meditation and prayer and then we will experience it? Or are they pointing out to us something which is always there? The second one, yes. They are pointing out to us something which is always there. They are using language to point it out. They are using language to introduce us to our real nature. When, when will we get it? We have already got it. When can you not get it? When will we experience it? We are already experiencing it. When can you not experience it? But we don't know it. We don't recognize it. We don't own up to it. What the teacher is doing is, is using language just like when you stand here and say, this is the temple, this is the altar, you are seeing it already. Now in your experience, they are pointing out what, where is God? Where is Brahman? Where is Atman? Where is that part of us, that which is immortal, which does not change with the change of the body, which does not change with the changes of the mind? They are pointing it out to us. It leads to a great um, shift in spiritual life. What happens is, till this point, till we get it, we are seeking God. We are seeking God. We have heard that God can be experienced. So we do, we meditate, we do good, good deeds, we read scriptures, we attend talks, seeking God. Once you go through, once you get what the teacher of the Upanishad is telling you, you are no longer seeking God. Where will you seek it? It's always there and all the time there. Whether you are a student of Vedanta or not, whether you are seeking God or not, whether you are a rankist, agnostic or atheist, it's always there, constantly available. Somebody put it in this way. The best term for it is never not there. All the time there. But we need to be introduced to it. We need to be, it needs to be pointed out. We need to recognize it, to own up to it. That's what the Upanishad is doing. How does it work? In every experience. When you think of something, be aware of yourself, the consciousness illumining the thought. The thought and the consciousness are two distinct things. Thought comes and goes. It's like the light is illumining everything. So there is a desk here and a pillar here. When I look at the desk, same light falls on the desk and it illumines the desk. And I see the desk. When I see the pillar, the same light falls on the pillar and it illumines the pillar. Desk and the pillar are different. But the light is the same. In the same way, all our experiences are different from each other, but they all appear and disappear in the light of our consciousness. The light of the consciousness, and the light of the consciousness is a way of speaking. It is light, it is consciousness. And that does not change. The objects come and go. 
the experiences of our life come and go the people come and go good and bad comes and goes thoughts arise and thoughts disappear desires come and go some are satisfied some are frustrated the satisfaction and the frustrations come and go in the light which you are the big change is this till now all of us would agree yes i am a body mind with consciousness i am a conscious body mind i am a body and a mind with consciousness what you should do now is shift over take the step from that and say confidently i am consciousness in body and mind i am not body and mind which is conscious i am consciousness shining in a body mind this is the step that the teacher wants the other student to take in the upanishad you are consciousness shining in that particular body and mind now he says he says ಪ್ರತಿಬೋಧವಿಧಿತ್ಯಮೃತಮೃತಿಸ್ಟೈನ್ಸ್ಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟ
There's a beautiful verse with which I shall conclude in the Ashtavakra. Mai ananta maham bodhau vishwa vichi swabhavata udetu vastamayatu nami vriddhi navakshati Imagine yourself to be like the Pacific Ocean. An ocean of consciousness. An ocean of consciousness in which waves are rising and falling. What are these waves which are rising and falling? Bodies, born. A mind develops. A personality comes. Interacts with the world. Then degenerates. Slowly begins to subside back into the ocean of consciousness. And disappears finally into the ocean of consciousness. He says, just as this Pacific Ocean... Thousands of waves every day rising and becoming higher and then subsiding back into the ocean. The ocean says, I am neither increased nor decreased. I suffer neither increase nor decrease when the waves come up or the waves subside. In the same way, we shall be able to say, I am not exalted or increased by birth, by good health, by success. I am not diminished in any way by disease and old age and death and failure. I am that infinite ocean in which, why only this body? All bodies are coming up. Upanishad says, Bhuteshu Bhuteshu Vichityahira. Finding this consciousness which you are in all beings, you feel your oneness with all beings. First you feel that consciousness within you, you are that. Next you feel it is the same consciousness shining in all, be- in all beings. The same light which illumines this desk and this pillar. So you feel one in all living beings, in all creatures. And you can say, let the bodies come and go, let thoughts come and go, let events happen. I am neither increased by them, nor diminished by them. I am infinite, immortal consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss. That is what I had to say, and I have finished just with one minute to spare. But we wait, we'll take just two or three minutes. If you have any questions, I thought I'll take a couple of questions because uh, it is a very difficult subject after all. I hope I've encouraged you to study the Keno Upanishad. That's, for, that's one thing. <laughs> Do you have any questions? All right, that concludes our program for this morning. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.